Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivulani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Ronald Hardin, who's the General Secretary of the Association for Medical Education in Europe, a highly influential organization that supports teachers and institutions in their current educational activities and in the development of new approaches to curriculum planning, teaching and learning methods, assessment techniques, and education management. The AMI community of members and non-members spans 100 countries and five continents, and personally, I've been delighted to have attended several AMIs, including in Barcelona and Helsinki in the past. Professor Hardin is recognized as one of the leading international figures in medical education. He was a practicing endocrinologist before devoting his career to improving the field. Among his many contributions is pioneering the development of the Objective Structured Clinical Examination, or OSCE, which has been universally adopted as a standard approach to assessment of clinical competence. And Professor Hardin joins us today as he and his team at AMI are preparing for their popular annual conference being held from August 27th through the 31st in Lyon, France. So thanks so much. Good to see you again, Dr. Hardin. I appreciate your time. Great to be with you. I've always admired what you've been doing in osmosis it very much in keeping with some of the, what I believe are the trends and the ways ahead in medical education. So glad to speak with you this afternoon. Likewise. Thanks for carving in the time. It's been great seeing you at not only the Amy conference, but other conferences and, and kind of keeping in touch with the developments with you. So, you know, for our audience who may not know who you are, most of them will, and anyone in the medical education field certainly will. Um, I'm curious uh, if you could give them a, a description of your background, what got you interested in medicine, then endocrinology, and then ultimately medical education. Well, I started off as an endocrinologist, as a Glasgow graduate, and uh, working in the Department of Medicine as a junior lecturer in endocrinology, was interested in thyroid disease and did a lot of research in iodine metabolism. But inevitably, I got sucked into the teaching there and helping with the examinations and the, the lecture program. And it suddenly struck me as a junior member of staff that there are a lot of things that are not quite right. You know, there's a very much established tradition. This is the way we've always done it, whether it's the senior professors and the final exams uh, passing or failing students or giving lectures. And I felt we needed to challenge some of these assumptions that the senior teachers were taking. And that really is what got me into the, the lecture. I mean, I was looking at the final exam and it struck me that some of the students who were being deemed as failed in the final examination, which was basically a clinical examination, really should pass. And some of the students who were passing struck me as really, I, I wouldn't like them to be treating uh, me or my, my relatives. Uh, so there seemed to be something wrong with that. And that got me thinking, well, what could we do better and that was the beginning of the objective structured clinical examination of the OSCE as a more objective way of testing a range of competencies that when someone did pass in that exam, you knew had certain skills that were required by a practicing doctor. So it was getting into that. And similarly on the lecture side, the, everyone would believe that all, the only way a students would learn is by attending all the lectures. And it seemed to me that, yes, there still is a place for lectures. And I'm not knocking lectures. I think there is a strong place for lectures. But I think there are other roles uh, for alternative approaches and I finally persuaded the, the teachers to um, let me try out a group of students, volunteer students, who would not go to any lectures, instead do my endocrinology course. I was an endocrinology, I said at that time, I do my endocrinology course entirely by uh, tape slide presentations. That was the technology at that time. 
And to everyone's amazement, the students who did this were a range of students, some good, some poor students, all did better in the final examination at the end of this course than uh, those who just stuck with the traditional lecture course. And uh, so this really convinced people that there were alternative ways of learning rather than attending lectures. So it was attacking these basic principles that um, I, I got me interested in, in medical education and more generally. And then the opportunity came to move to Dundee to uh, but this time I was a consultant physician working in my own thyroid clinic uh, to move to Dundee to continue my thyroid work, but with the chance of uh, changing the curriculum. The curriculum in Dundee um, had been criticised seriously by the General Medical Council, and the, one of the, the leads in the school at that time uh, was also an endocrinologist and we knew each other from our thyroid work and he said look i know you're interested in not just endocrinology but education would you be interested in coming and helping us revise our curriculum and the principal of the university principal Drever, was an educational psychologist so he was interested as well so they tempted me through to dundee and i, I then gradually spent more and more of my time in education and less of less of my time in endocrinology and I stopped doing my thyroid research but still did a thyroid clinic till a number of years later. The head of the medicine, Sir Edward Wayne, uh, eminent physician, said to me, look Ronald, there's many, many people working in thyroid disease uh, but there's not so many people working in education and doing research in education. Uh, why don't you spend more of your time in education? And that made a lot of sense to me. And that way was the start of me then getting more and more involved in my move to Dundee and my getting more involved in, in education. And we're all very glad you have. You just mentioned how you have improved in your team, uh, the clinical competence examinations with the OSCE, but also, you know, the flip classroom well before we even had YouTube as like a, a platform. And obviously a lot of the work that you and your team have done was the foundation for the work that ultimately we decided to do at Osmosis when we were medical students at, at Hopkins. Um, I will say a, a side note that uh, I feel like the Scottish influence on medical global medical education is very strong because not only you, but my boss at Elsevier, Elizabeth Munn, who we've had on the podcast, is from Scotland and trained at uh, in Glasgow as well. Um, so I, I think there's something in the water up in, up in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so, so speaking of, you know, you started doing this medical education research, it became influential. Can you talk to us a bit about AMI? And, you know, it's probably the largest conference, if not one of the largest conferences and most influential ones for medical education. And it's much more, if you go to one of these conferences, it's not just Europe. Uh, there's a ton of people from all over the world. A lot of my North American colleagues are going, Asian colleagues, et cetera. Can you give us a bit of those trends and what your focus is for this year's AMI conference? Yeah, a great question. I think when I started to get involved with AMI, it was really an association of national associations in medical education. But it seemed to me that that was fine and we spent time talking about policies and practices, but it seemed to me that the real drive ahead had to come from individuals. And rather than national associations, we should look at individual members and have a conference that individual teachers could come along and present their work, share their experience, and learn from other people's experiences. So we gradually we built up from a conference and an association that was really about national associations working together, uh, which is important, uh, but to a, an association where there was also much more seeing that medical education is a professional field, that we should all be 
proud to, we're teachers. In fact, there's a scholarship in teaching where we try new ideas, uh, we share them with others, and there is a scholarship in teaching. And we gradually built Amy individual membership up. Uh, the first meeting uh, Amy had, I think it was 150 people attended it, mainly from national associations. And uh, just before the pandemic, we had over 4,000 people uh, mainly individuals coming to our, our conference. And this year, despite problems with COVID and travel, uh, to my surprise and, and I'm going to say relief that we've now got, I think, almost 3,500 coming uh, to this year's AMI conference. And these will be, I think, enthusiasts who want to share their own experience, to learn from others, to learn from new ideas like what you're talking about in osmosis and so on. So it's, uh, it's a home for encouraging teachers uh, who are, I think, are professionals, not only are professional doctors, but if you're a professional teacher, you have responsibilities to keep up to date with what's happening in teaching, to evaluate your own teaching and to improve it and to educate others and share some of your experience with others. So we're not just technicians as teachers, which is often almost the way we're painted or information transmitters with walking tape recorders and lectures, uh, but we're uh, actually having a responsibility to look after this next generation in doctors. Um, uh, you know, I thought that was a telling quote from Christopher McAuliffe, the, that the American astronaut who was died was about 30 seconds into that terrible uh, accident when the space graphics exploded. And she was going to be the first teacher up in space. And she was asked about a week before she went and was killed uh, what she did. And she didn't say, I'm interested in science or I'm an astronaut. She said, I touch the future I teach. And I thought that was a very telling thing. And it made me think, look, we have a, a huge responsibility um, as doctors, as teachers, the next generation of doctors, people who are going to look after us and our families. Uh, we have a huge responsibility to make sure these are the best doctors possible. And I think Amy aim is to look at how do we improve education to let people become better doctors, and with the result that they deliver better health care, because that's the ultimate goal, of course. I looked through with something like 3,500 abstracts submitted for this year's meeting, okay? huge. And I, I looked through them all, and I find it really educated. It's part of my own continuing education, and to see the range of topics being addressed whether it's in new approaches to curriculum planning or to teaching and learning methods or to assessment um, or to how do we manage education, how do we admit students? Um, and also at the Ottawa conference, which is just this year immediately preceding uh, the AMI conference, uh, how do we better improve assessment? So it's um, a huge range of interesting themes being addressed at the meeting. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mentioned in the intro, I've really benefited myself and, and very influential for how we're thinking about osmosis and the things we put into the into the platform, the evidence-based learning and teaching strategies, some of which I only learned about by attending Amy and, and as you said, reviewing some of those abstracts and posters and, and plenary speakers. You know, there's so many trends in medical education. You've seen many of them. You alluded to the fact that when you were flipping the lecture classroom, it was on a totally different technology medium than we have now. You know, COVID obviously has changed quite a bit. We're seeing in the practice of healthcare, telehealth got a lot of adoption. There's obviously been a bit of a pullback, but it's it's much bigger than it was pre-COVID. 
consumer-centric healthcare with big tech companies like Amazon and Walmart getting into, into healthcare delivery. You know, these are massive trends that have been accelerated over the last two years. What are some of the key trends in medical education that you think have been accelerated because of COVID and are going to be here to stay? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, as you point out, a, a great opportunity COVID has almost given us. I think it was the Times Higher Education uh, supplement had in the front cover uh, a few months ago. Look, this is a crisis that gives us a chance and a challenge to radically remake medical education. And so I think there are opportunities. I think one is, as you've suggested, is the delivery of the, the education program that in the past it was entirely based on a face-to-face -face learning in most situations. And this has gone in many COVID situations to entirely online using the new technologies. Um, so th th there's been a great force to employ technologies to deliver online learning. Um, what worries me, however, is what are the lessons we're learning? And you see really two camps have emerged from this. There's the camp who say, well, this is all very well. We've wasted all this time and money building lecture theatres. The whole thing should be done online. And the others camp saying, well, look, uh, this is... Um, not what education is about. It isn't just transmitting information. It's actually uh, doing other things that we can do better, change attitudes with face-to-face -face contact. And there's this argument for or against each other. And I think what we're missing the opportunity is to rethink an alternative approach to education. And what I've called, uh, I'm just suggesting at the moment, is fusion learning as an interesting idea. Fusion learning in that if you look at fusion, you've got nuclear fusion where you have combining various things and a huge energy release. But probably more appropriate to think about as an analogy, uh, fusion cooking where you get different ethnic food and you put it together and each chef creates his own unique and interesting dish. And I think what we need to think is not argue for or against online learning, but how can we combine these two ingredients, like in cooking, the, the lectures and the online learning, and result with some, some exciting new way of delivering our education program. And it lets us do something different, not just to use the technology to do better what we're already doing. And a while ago, I wrote this article on e-learning, uh, caged bird or, fl or flying eagle, soaring eagle, saying, are we thinking of e-learning as simply a caged bird or a, a flying eagle where it explores new areas? And this is what we should be looking for is, is a new approach to this. And I think one thing, for example, that I really believe what we're seeing more in the future is what I've called adaptive learning where what the aim is not to give everyone the same unique course of lectures or set of recorded lectures, but actually to tailor these to everyone's individual needs. I mean, coming back to my own experience as an endocrinologist and, and my patients with thyroid disease and hyperthyroidism, um, some I'd be giving radioactive iodine to, some antithyroid drugs, um, some surgery, different doses of drugs. Uh, and it was suited to each individual patient. And I think we need to realize that every student is also different and we need to tailor the education to each individual uh, student. So this notion of adaptive learning. Of course, in the past, when you thought the whole model was one of uh, recorded or, or set lectures, it wasn't possible. But now with technology uh, and with these range of tools at our disposal, we can move to this higher level objective thinking. It's not that the student has to adapt to whatever learning methods that, we're, that that school is offering, but the learning methods will adapt to that student's needs. So I think that's the challenge with technology. And I think we're going to see much more in the future. I mean, I was struck at, in London, uh, I was down the last month, 
and uh, there was an advertisement board. And as you approached it, there was, there was a built-in camera, I think, into it. And it changed the advertisement you saw, depending on who was approaching it. Wow. So I, I saw, I think, more for older men. But um, stood aside, I saw a young lady was coming across. It was a very different advert she saw. <laughs> uh, now, okay, that's different. But it, it's it's the whole principle. I think we're going to, in the future, have much more, whether what we buy or what we get in Amazon or we make in our computers, tailored to our own personal needs. And the same is true of education. And I think that's what great, what partly what you're doing as Moses, of course, is this is what you, the whole thrust of what you're doing is also about this catering for individual needs and students um, getting a program that can meet their personal learning requirements. So, so I think that's the, the, the technology. Uh, we'll use it in different ways. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's actually kind of really interesting. You mentioned the advertisement in, in London. I think I saw the same one when I was there a couple couple months ago. Um, you know, when we first connected, uh, I think I had sent you an article we had written for the Annals of Internal Medicine called What Can Medical Education Learn from Facebook and Netflix? And it was all about how we could use precision recommendations. You know, customers about this, also about that. People who watch this, also watch that. Things you've been talking about for a long time, and now the technology's caught up with uh, with the data, with the user interfaces. And truly, it's one of the reasons we even decided to join Elsevier is that we weren't going to be able to build a 3D anatomy viewer ourselves or continuing education completely ourselves or patient education, but having a suite of offerings and partnering. I know you also work with with Elsevier on your your scholarly work and publications, right? Um, that being able to kind of put that all together uh, and then offer it through one system could be could be helpful. But I'm glad there's a lot of innovation and in other companies in the space too, because that's what drives the field, for, helps drive the field forward in addition to the academic work. Yeah. And I mean, I think relating to that and what you're saying and what you're doing is the if we're looking at these the changes that are taking place, partly precipitated by COVID, but I think they were there before that, and we're just seeing it the changes accelerated. And one is the the role of the student. And talking about Elsevier, we've just uh, finished a book on the changing role of medical students, and it's going to be published next year by Elsevier. And it's talking about the, the student has a changing role as partner in the learning program, not just there as a client or consumer. How do they process information themselves? Uh, and how do they benefit from lectures? How do they acquire their own information? Um, how do they help be co-producers of the curriculum? Uh, there's an interesting paper we published in Medical Teacher by Sharon Kapadia, a student from London. And she said, look, um, think again, you, you know, as conventional thought, the teachers think we are there to teach and students are there to learn. But also students are there to, to help the learning. We're co-producers. And in, during the, the COVID pandemic, the students at Imperial worked with the staff and, and prepared a new course. We can help each other learn. Uh, we can assess our students' competencies. And you know, I think it's um, we ignore the students, uh, the, the, the resources and what they're able to help with, not just in peer teaching and teaching themselves, but also in assessment. Um, you know, I think one of the things that the COVID pandemic has made us think more about is attitudes as well. Diane Wayne, in an interesting article, she's an emergency physician in Chicago. And she said, looking at my young emergency physicians, I'm training. Uh, before I used to develop my postgraduate training program, what skills did they require? What knowledge did they require? And that was my program. I now realize that, of course, skills and knowledge are important. But even more important is other things like resilience, like grit, 
like solving problems and even she said kindness you know these are key attributes i'm now i'm going to change radically my postgraduate training program so of course they'll cover information and skills but they'll address also these other issues so so i think it is a a challenge to do this now how do you build these in how do you assess these and on the assessment side of course one of the aims of the OSCE was to move in that direction but i think one needs to look at other ways as well when it comes to assessing attitudes and i think students can help with this um you know i was struck there was that dreadful case in the uk where the general practitioner um was responsible for the deaths for almost 300 patients uh, it is a completely unethical practice and in his practice i mean it, it, the system was wrong as well so i think it hopefully can happen again but interestingly i knew someone who was in the same class at medical school as he was and she said look we knew there was something wrong with him his attitude to patients and how he what he did and didn't do as a medical student he said we'd never ever dream of sending to him our relatives or ourselves to be treated. It was just, it, it was inappropriate as a doctor. Yet he scored high marks on all the exams and passed in medical school. But when he went to practice, these attitudes came out. And she said, look, students often know this. They're the best judges of these attitudes. So I think this peer, not just peer teaching, but peer assessment we'll see more of in the future. So students will have an increasingly important role in different ways as as teachers, as peer teachers, as processors of information themselves, um, but also as decision makers in the medical school and as uh, assessors of other students. Uh, difficult, but I think it's possible. And I think that's, we need to rethink what we're doing radically from the, and that's why I, I, you know, I've been interested from the beginning, as I said at the way at the beginning, my approach in Glasgow it was, we need to challenge the system and uh, don't just say that well, students are there to learn we're there to teach you know that's condensed wisdom but we must challenge that i love that i mean there's so many parallels and and so many examples of students who became engaged whether it's on a curriculum committee scholarship i know amy has a lot of student scholarships and you bring a lot of students from around the world to amy to present uh obviously when i was a student i was i was coming out and um you know companies osmosis sketchy medical picmonic all friends of mine that that have created these things I will also say there's the parallel with patients where like nowadays it seems more doctors and, and providers want to partner with their patients to be co-producers of health as opposed to just take these pills and call me in the morning. It's more, you know, shared decision making and these other trends. So there's a lot of parallels that, to what you're describing to the actual practice outside of medical education. Yeah, you're a great example and what you're doing and what your group, uh, what students can do. I mean, it's uh, it shows the power of the what's what's possible uh, with students as, as partners in the learning program in all sorts of different ways. Thank you. And and again, we, we, we benefit from mentors like yourself and, and uh, so many others. Amin Azam is a professor at UCSF who uh, works at Osmosis part-time too. He enabled his students at UCSF to get medical school credit to edit Wikipedia articles. He was the first to do that uh, and did it in a big way. And he presented in Helsinki. We, we came together and had a great time at Amin Helsinki. I have two more questions for you, if you don't mind. The, the first is uh, on the topic of students, but given that our audience primarily are current and future healthcare professionals, in addition to your advice to have them be co-producers of their own medical education and improve the, the the system, what other advice would you give to them about approaching their careers in healthcare now that everything seems to have changed post-pandemic? Think what they're passionate about. You know, I think you've got to be passionate and you've got to enjoy what you're doing. I know it's it's trite advice, but 
medicine, medical education is exciting uh, and it's enjoyable. You've got to be job satisfaction. So find something that you like doing and develop it further and that will open up all sorts of other doors for you and be, be passionate and enjoy what you're doing. And that is, I think, the road to success. I agree. And hope, hopefully it makes the work seem less like work if they find the right the right approach. That's a theme that comes up with these these interviews. Um, I think there's just one other small point just to add there. It's less important, but I think also to realize there is a science behind learning and behind many of these things. You know, I think how we often learn as students isn't the often the best way of doing it. And again, you're showing that in different ways as well. But, uh, you know, the notion of simply underlining or reading the same bit of text, again, uh, highlighting it, that's not the most effective way to learn. We know a lot now more about how we can learn, how we can learn more effectively, efficiently, and one that we find more satisfying. So I think there is a, a science behind learning. And of course, that's one of the, back to your earlier question about what Amy is about, is helping to promote research in medical education to find how can people learn better and, and get more motivation. We need a lot more research on what motivates students and what motivates teachers, because that is, I think, the secret ingredient, this motivation. I agree. And and really excited, too, about your upcoming book you mentioned. I, I wanted to circle back to that because I know folks at Elsevier like Mads Hyde and Kathleen Reed, people you know, speak very highly of it. And uh, I think it'll be something we need to get you back on the show to talk about that book when it comes out, because so many of our audience, I think, would benefit from from being more engaged. You know, we, we benefit from having many really impressive people on this podcast and some people who've sustained that ability to contribute over not just years, but decades, the marathon, they didn't burn out. They're still very active. And um, three quick examples. One is Catherine D'Angelo. She was at Hopkins. She was the first editor in chief of JAMA. And I remember asking her, I think she was in her seventies at the time. I asked her, Dr. D'Angelo, when are you going to retire? And she's like, Shiv, honey, I've never tired the first time. How can I retire? Uh, and so just just maintaining that level of activity. Two other ones, Peter Frischoff started Medscape. He's a regular listener on the podcast, was on the podcast, a mentor of mine. Um, he's in his mid-70s, very active, knows the apps and the new tools well before my my other friends in their 30s and, and even 20s. And then lastly, Alan Patrikoff, who started a whole VC fund called Primetime Partners to invest in businesses for the ageless generation. He's 87 and went skiing with us two years ago in Park City. So there are these people who just kind of stand out, including you. You know, you have so much energy. You have as much energy as when I first met you like eight years ago. What do you do to maintain kind of that that vitality and that uh, contribution in addition to your motivation and passion? Like, is there something you can give as far as advice to, to have decades worth of contributions as opposed to just years? Uh, no, I think just to remain active and do things, and that applies to education elsewhere. I mean, coming back, circling back to your earlier question about Amy, when I was first approached by Henri Wojciech about getting more involved with Amy, and he wanted me to take on the role of president, and I said no, and this was, I'm sure, was the best one of the best decisions I have taken is, no, I said I don't, but I'll take on the role of general secretary. Because what I want to do is not just lead something from above and, and just watch it all happening. I want to be there when I can actually do things myself. I, I still feel very much like that. I just want to keep active and doing things. There's so much things to be done. That was why I got involved with doing the OSCE, because I could just have sat back and done the conventional clinical exams or do the lectures. And it's so it's, it's I think, actually keeping involved and doing things is is the and that gives you satisfaction, as I said, also uh, fun and, and, and enjoyment at the same time. So 
and there's so much still to be done, uh, so many exciting things to do. Just written another paper on the look in the future of medical education. And, you know, my sad thing is, well, I, will I still be alive when many of these things are fulfilled? But I want to be part of them as much as possible. Um, so I, I think it is an exciting uh, future we have. This exciting journey ahead in in medical education. Um, and you know, one of my cartoons I use is a, a rocket ship uh, going into the future. Uh, and I, you know, I want to be a passenger on that rocket ship as long as possible not just a passenger, you're a pilot in many ways and or an engineer for it. So um, my last question for you, again, being respectful of your time is, is there anything else that we didn't cover on this uh, podcast that you'd like to be able to leave our audience with? I think maybe one other thing, and that is we talked about the role of students, but I think also the, the role of teachers is also changing. I think that is something that um, has come out of the COVID pandemic as well. Uh, you know, I think when I first became a, an endocrinologist and a teacher, I was an expert in endocrinology. And my job was to pass on my expertise to the students. As an information provider, I think that's very much um, been the role we see as the teacher, as someone who passes on their expertise to the student. And I think that's changed dramatically and is no longer appropriate. Of course, there are still some. But, you know, I was struck by the Dean from Flinders at a meeting of the International Association of Medical Science Educators a couple of years ago, held up his iPhone and said, look, you basic science teachers, you're wasting a lot of your time giving lectures, which are better covered in this iPhone. And you have other roles to help students learn much better as a facilitator of the learning and so on, as a creator. So I think not only a provider of learning resources, passing on information, a conductor of information, transmitter of information, but you should really become a collator of information for the students. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing during the COVID pandemic. There's a lot of more information out there, some of the stuff you're doing and so on, but the teacher can help collate that and put it in. But I think thirdly, um, and it's Chuck Friedman that made the, the assertion um, that really there are three things we should do as teachers we don't do is we should teach our students how to ask the right question. And secondly, um, where to get the answers, how to find when they need to know something, when they see a new patient, a new disease, a new learn a new thing, how do they, where do they get the answers? And thirdly, how do they evaluate that answer? So I think the, the final thought is that I think not only is the role of the students changing, but fundamentally the role of the teacher has, has, has changed. And I think it's difficult for us maybe to think about that. I, I, I don't know if you ever saw the film, The Dead Poets Society. Yeah. I've got a small excerpt from it. And the, at one stage, the, he gets up on top of the table and stands on top of a table in the classroom and asks the students all to come up and join him on the table. And he said, doesn't things look different up here on this table looking at the room? I said, what, you should be looking at things all in a different way. Uh, and I, I think, in, again, medical education, we should be looking at things in a different way. So the role of students are different and the role of teachers also are different. And I think we need to look at education in a different way. I love that. That's a, that's a wonderful thing to end on. And obviously you've been doing that for decades and helping push the field forward. So and Professor Harden, it's always, always a pleasure to connect with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. And more importantly, for the work that you've done over the past decades to, to not only train thousands of students directly, but the thousands of teachers who then in turn train thousands of students are really millions of uh, current and future healthcare professionals. Th thank you for inviting me and always a pleasure to talk with you. Great. And with that, uh, thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care.
If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.